Good morning, everybody. We sure are glad to have that slow learners group back there. You know, we're all slow learners, uh, including uh, the Corinthian church. They were slow learners. We're finding that out. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the stragglers, isn't he? He's, uh, the majority of the folks in that church had repented of their wayward uh, uh, beliefs and behaviors when Paul sent a very strong letter to them, a letter so strong he was worried about it, whether it would harm them or hurt their feelings or turn them away from the gospel, but it turns out it had a great effect. Titus comes back to Macedonia, reports to him that the church has repented, but there is still a significant minority who is saying, oh, Paul's got powerful letters, but he's so weak in his presence. And uh, when he gets here, you'll, you'll see. And so Paul is now saying, Please, don't make me show my strength in my presence. Uh, please, re- repent now. And so we saw that with all the joy that was in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapters uh, 1 through 9, that when we got to chapter 10, the, the, uh, the whole frame, uh, a psychological frame, seems to switch. His attitude seems to change. And he becomes uh, very uh, adversarial. Well, he's speaking to that minority right now. And he's warning them that they need to turn and repent. And what was the problem? The problem was that they still wanted to follow the so-called super apostles. Now, they either gave these men the name super apostles, or Paul uses that name just to deride them, just to mock them, call them super apostles. But whatever they were, they were men who apparently were trained in rhetoric and in philosophy. They were very eloquent, and they were preaching another message. They were preaching another Christ, actually. They were preaching another way of salvation. They were trying to co-opt the true gospel that Paul was preaching and put it into a broader ministry that they had. They seemed also to suggest certain rigors of the Jewish life that one must uh, adhere to in order to be a real believer. Paul is objecting to all of this uh, heresy and apostasy that they are proclaiming and he is defending himself as an apostle and his message as the true apostolic message. So when we come to chapter 11, it's one of the more unusual chapters in your Bible. It is ironic. Paul is pretending uh, to be a boaster just like the super apostles. So in order to kind of show them up, he is going to become what he calls a fool. Now we're all fools for Christ's sake. We're fools in the eyes of the world. Paul's going to become a real fool and become like the super apostles and compare himself to them, which he just said in chapter 10 is of no use because we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to ourselves. Only the Lord is the one who judges us. And we see that he begins to boast about himself. And he's just said in chapter 10, verse 17, let no one boast except in the Lord. So the only boasting that's to take place from human beings is to boast in God Himself. And yet now, He's going to become a true fool and boast about Himself. It's an ironic satire. He's taking the sort of attitude that the super apostles take, and He's acting like one of them in a very foolish way to make His point. And His point is, you all are ones acting like a bunch of idiots. I'm going to act like a fool like you. The super apostles are being foolish. You're being foolish for following them. I'm going to lose in my mind. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're losing your mind. So Paul is going to act like a crazy man, a spiritual fool, so that he can show how foolish they're being and how foolish they are to follow these super apostles. Uh, <laughs> I've never 
I've never been bold enough to preach a sermon like that, you know, just to show up in a clown suit, you know, and make fun of all the sinners. But that's what, that's basically what he's doing in chapter 11. And the purpose of it is simply to get their attention, to find some way to convince them. He tried the more direct approach in his third letter. It was obviously a very direct uh, adversarial letter. Now he's going to just make fun of them, see if he can win a few more. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to win them. And whatever we do, however we present ourselves, we're always trying to win people. And we'll do whatever we can do that's legal and ethical and doesn't undermine the gospel in order to win some. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to pick up another group out of the minority uh, by convincing them. Well, let's look at chapter 11 then and look at this amazing chapter. In the midst of it, we're going to understand something about how one carries out the gospel how one endures gospel afflictions, what it means to be a gospel messenger as we go out of that door here in just a few minutes. And here you're going to get it with the life of the Apostle Paul uh, big time. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it. If someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. 
But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Amen. All right. This is one of the most amazing displays of apostolic love I think you'll find in the Bible. Well, uh, we don't have an overhead. Oh, we do have an overhead. Good for us. Okay. Uh, let's, let's look at verses 1 through 15, and, and we're going to see here that we underestimate our offenses against the gospel. And that's the first thing the apostle is showing here, that you're, you're drifting or you're adhering to another viewpoint or another worldview. You're abandoning God as Creator or Christ as the only Savior. These, these little heretical side trips that you take, uh, you vastly underestimate how offensive they are. When you entertain philosophical thoughts or you're impressed with Sartre or, or Nietzsche or somebody else and you just go over the line and you end up adopting some things that contradict the, the Word of God, it's highly offensive. And uh, we underestimate the offense of our intellectual liberty taken when we violate the standards of the Scriptures. Now, I'm all for intellectual and academic freedom. And I'm grateful to live in a country when you can not only study those things, but you can spout off whatever you believe. And I would defend that to my death, the civil right for us to believe what we want to believe, and to be able to uh, communicate whatever it is that we believe. That is worth dying for, as you know. But in Christ, when we take the civil liberties that we have, which are hard-earned and which are worth dying for, and we abuse those liberties, those academic liberties, those intellectual liberties, those civil liberties, and we start adopting things that are contrary to the Word of God, it's highly, highly offensive. Let's look why. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. He's basically saying, look, you've been bearing with fools for months. So why don't you just bear with me for just a minute and I'll be a fool too. Since you've been putting up with so many fools and you've become one yourself. Certainly you should be able to tolerate another fool. And let me just boast to you for a while. So the Apostle Paul, uh, he's, he's not, 
I wouldn't say Paul's in a real good mood right now. Uh, he's, he's upset. And the first thing he says is that we underestimate the offense of our unfaithful engagement to the Lord. You've been engaged to the Lord, and now you're messing around with other women. That's basically the analogy he uses here. Look at, the, look at verse 2. He says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. What's he saying? In the Jewish tradition of that time, the father would engage his young daughter to a young man. Or it was usually a little bit of an older man. Maybe he had 10 years on the, on the girl, something like that. But he would engage his daughter to be married sometime in the future to the man. And basically the future was determined by when she reached uh, sexual or physical maturity. And then she would soon after that be given as a bride. Now when the father did that, when he betrothed, he promised his daughter to a man. It was then the father's responsibility to be sure that she was kept pure until she was handed over to her husband. So the father felt responsible. And of course, we feel responsible today, don't we? We guard and protect our daughters. We're willing to lay down our lives for them. We'll fight people to ward them off. We want to have that young man come talk to us before he takes our daughter out the door because we are her protector. Even today, we're her protector. But in that day, it was a, almost a legal, it was a legal and moral obligation to keep your daughter pure until she was given to the person you promised her to. Now, Paul is saying, I'm like the daddy. You're my daughter. I led you to Christ. And I have betrothed you. I have promised you to Him. I've offered you to Him. And you've offered yourselves to Him freely. You've become engaged to Him. And that's our status, if you will. We're engaged. This is rehearsal night. Tomorrow's the wedding day. Jesus Christ comes back on the wedding day. We're betrothed to Him now. We'll consummate the marriage in intimate relations when He comes back. That's the picture. That's the reason we have marriage, so that we can understand more about our relationship with God through Christ. And Paul is saying, you were engaged, and it was my responsibility to keep you pure, and you've been out there adulterating with other men. And so, of course, the father is upset. I remember uh, years ago, there was a teenager in our youth group, and she, she was a beautiful young lady, and she had become sexually active with a guy, not in the youth group, but some guy at school. And nobody knew about it until about three months later. She wasn't pregnant, but the word got out. And when I was speaking to her just pastorally later, she said, uh, Pastor Sandy, she said, I had no idea how bad my sin was until I saw the face of my dad when I told him. The grief and the sorrow and the anger, the disappointment. And she said, on his face, I could actually see what I did. Paul is showing them the face of God. You have grieved him. You have abandoned him. You've decided that there's a more attractive fiancé than he. And it's highly offensive, deeply sorrowful. So Paul is saying... It's an unfaithful engagement when you like to entertain. Oh, you know, maybe we did just evolve out of the murk of the ground with no, no divine intention. Great. A wonderful 
theory that one can explore. But do you realize what you're doing? The whole while you're saying you have no bridegroom. There's no one who intentionally created you in His own image. There's no one who's elected you from all eternity, who appointed you and who made you out of the dust of the ground, who has total rights over you. You're denying all that. At the same time that you're entertaining these fancy little philosophical theories. So he's saying, look, we underestimate our offenses because we forget that there is an unfaithful aspect to our engagement with the Lord. Secondly, he says, we underestimate our gullibility. We're so gullible, so fickle, so easily convinced. I I wish non-Christians were so easily convinced to be Christians as sometimes Christians are so easily convinced to believe non-Christian ideas. It's amazing how gullible we can be. He says, first of all, we are easily allured by Satan. Paul says, you were, you were engaged to be the Lord's, but I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You listen to the devil. Good heavens! Now, we don't know where the devil came from. Some think maybe he was an angel who, who fell out of heaven. But I think in each of those texts, there's another interpretation to those texts. So I'd actually have to say, he may have been an angel who fell out of heaven. Certainly in Revelation 12, with the incarnation of Christ and the event of Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection, He was dethroned from having any position in the heavenly realms. In Revelation 12, you know, He's thrown down to the earth and He's very angry because we're told His time is short. I don't think that technically means he was an angel in heaven. I believe it means he was a power, the greatest evil power that had had power in the so-called heavenly realms. And likewise, in Isaiah 14, where we see that he's cast down. Well, there Isaiah is talking about foreign kings, evil kings who were cast down. So I don't think that either of those texts or any other text I'm aware of tells us precisely where the devil came from. And as I said, I think to our congregation uh, last week, that what makes evil so evil is that it's completely irrational. You can't explain where evil comes from. If you could explain it, it would be less evil than it is. It, It makes no sense for any sentient being to rebel against an almighty God. So we don't know where the devil came from. We know that he was created by God, but where the evil came from is completely mysterious to us. We know that God allowed it because he's sovereign. Nothing happens without his permission. But he didn't cause it. You say, how can that be? I have no idea. It's like other mysteries. Tell me to explain to you how a, a person can be fully God and fully man. Called the hypostatic union of deity and humanity in Jesus Christ. I don't know how that happens. I just know that it is. And it's a mystery and I can't explain it. There are mysteries in life. And this is one of them. But we know that he was the most crafty creature in the garden. He was very deceitful. Satan is very powerful. He's very wicked. There's not one shred of good that he wants for you. The only good he wants to give you is bait. If he can bait you into something, he'll take you. The only food he's going to feed this fish is on the end of a hook. And so you'll come to the bait. It looks good. Actually, it is intrinsically good and delicious. But there's a hook in it. And he's trying to destroy you. He steals, kills, and destroys, we're told, by the Lord Jesus. That's his strategy with you. He is very, very sinister. A sinister. Sinister. That was a... (laughs) 
My apologies to a hundred men and women in Washington, D.C. I didn't mean that. He is sinister. He is not a senator, I promise you. He might be a Supreme Court justice, but not a senator. Sorry about that, too. All right, here we go. Back where we were. He's very sinister. He uses all kinds of evil methodologies. Usually, he does not smack you in the nose. That's a little bit too obvious for people like you who study the Bible. So he will come around the back and slash your tires. He will not usually confront you with a bold-faced lie. He'll give you a hundred truths so that he can tack on the 101st idea, which is a total lie. And he'll gain your favor by giving you a lot of truths. If you'll look at the most sinister religions in the world, there's a whole lot of truth in those religions. There's some things those religions do that actually Christians need to learn from. There's truth in other religions that we need to study. We need to listen carefully. But there is a bold-faced lie in every one of them. And Satan will put forward all these truths that look very, very beautiful and attach a lie to it. I've seen organizations that believe things that are actually wicked, and they'll justify their existence by the good things that they do in society, and they do some. And so they justify a lie with some other truths. That's classic satanic strategy. So, for example, these super apostles, I'm quite sure were preaching goodness and morality and civil uprightness and, and you know, you can do it all and great encouragement and inspiring everybody. I'm sure there was a lot of good. I'm sure they were great guys, you know, good buddies. So there was a lot of truth and a lot of goodness in it. But it's only bait. It's all bait with a hook in it so that you can be destroyed. Paul sees through it clearly and he's saying, are you believers? Have you received the Spirit? Have you received the Word of God? Use it, brothers, and adhere to it. And let it reframe your entire mentality and the way you look at things. We're so easily allured by the evil one. And he is wily and scheming. And he is subtle. So you should expect subtle treatment from the evil one. I told our, we happen to be dealing with Ephesians 6 in our church on Sunday mornings. And so we're talking about the evil one in taking up spiritual warfare. And I mentioned that a woman I know who was asked about how you can tell if a dollar bill is counterfeit, she said, it's it's easy. If you're a bank teller, you're counting dollars all the time. You're just counting them. And when you hit a counterfeit, you just immediately feel it. The reason is you've been counting the real thing so long. You can just feel it in the paper. It's different. It's the same way in spiritual realities. When you engage yourself with the Lord and you know Him personally, He's begun to shape your intuitions even. Everything about you by His Word and by the power of His Spirit when that lie comes along, you know it. You, you sense it. It's cheap. It's tinsel. It's, it's, it's not real. You can feel it. But it takes devotion to the things that are real in order to pick out the things that are not real. That's what the apostle is saying. You're so easily allured by Satan, which tells me you're either not very involved in the ordinary means of grace or there's a hidden sin in your life of which you have not repented And you're trying to live two different lives. So something's going on. It's either you're not getting the input and engaging in the prayer life to develop a personal relationship with Him, or you're living a double life. And when you live a double life, you're keeping both dogs alive. The good dog and the bad dog. And you're feeding them both. And so Satan, hey, he's got his dog. You're keeping the bad dog alive. He comes in and he plays with that dog. 
Just as Satan is subtle and deceitful, he finds a willing partner in your flesh. Paul says, in your flesh there is no good thing. In the old self there is no good thing. You must put the, the old self to death. And if you keep that old self alive and part of your leadership triumvirate in your own heart, you, you're consulted by your flesh all the time, you're making decisions according to your flesh, that's exactly where the, where the evil one will team up with that part of you. So when we lose our minds, when we lose our way, when we begin to be tempted by the evil one, it's because the outside opportunity presented by Satan has been matched with the internal compulsion of our flesh that we've not put to death. So one of those two things is occurring here, and Paul knows it, and he's trying to call them back. You're so easily allured by Satan. Now secondly, he says we readily embrace counterfeit gospels. He says if someone comes to you preaching another Jesus, you're so ready to listen and accept it. You're not even offended. You're thinking, well, you know, everybody has their ideas. So I guess this person has a right to their idea just as much as I do mine. I need to listen. And maybe, maybe what we can come up with is some sort of a compromise. As soon as you start thinking that way, you've absolutely abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if you, you guys who are married, you go home today and you say, you know, on the way home, I really saw a beautiful woman. And I asked her if we could just kind of put things together, you know, the three of us. And, you know, she's, you're kind of old and she's kind of young and attractive and we could have, you know, your experience with keeping house and making good friends and presenting a good personal front in society and she and I could have a great sex life together. I think we could really put this together in a wonderful way. Please don't try that today. <laughs> and don't say, that, hey, the pastor had a great idea today. But is that not outrageous? Totally outrageous? And that's what's happening here. You want another Jesus. You want to compromise the one who's in the Bible. You want to try to add to him or tweak him a little bit like he's, he's a wax figure or something. You can just take his nose and turn it any way you want to, make him look any way you want to. You must take Jesus as he is. And Paul says it's so discouraging to, to look at you men and women who have received the Lord Jesus Christ by profession of faith and now you're willing to listen to... A, an interpretation of Jesus that doesn't fit the Scripture. Now I have to say, in the day in which we live, there are some very subtle reinterpretations and misinterpretations of Jesus Christ. Very subtle. And once again, what makes them so subtle is that there's a lot of truth to them. For example, you have the Jesus who is the wise sage. And someone will present Him as just a wise person who's always putting out wise statements, and indeed he does. But the lie is that he's no more than a wise sage. There's some who say, Jesus is a radical social transformer. He just turned everything on his head. He obliterated slavery. He made men and women equal in value. He made Jew and Gentile friends. He broke the ethnic barriers. He was for the poor, and he loved them. And he gave himself for them. All this is true, but if that's all that he was, it becomes a lie. Some will say Jesus was a political transformer. Look what he did to the Roman Empire. Eventually, what he taught and what he did put the Roman Empire on the cross and destroyed them, which is true. Eventually, the empire itself fell. You can say he was a, he was a religious transformer. Look what happened to the Jewish religion. It was completely obliterated right there in Jerusalem. It was condemned, judged, gone. 
It lost its validity. And you could say, what a religious transformer, what a political transformer. Well, indeed he was. But if you say that's all he was, it becomes a big lie. A partial truth becomes a falsehood. Because here is who Jesus was. He was the suffering servant who was the Messiah. And He was the Son of God who laid down His life as our substitute on the cross and was raised the third day that we too might have life simply by trusting in Him. And He ascended into heaven to prepare a place for us so that we too would live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. He's our Savior for heaven's sakes. And so what you find is a lot of subtle airbrushing of Jesus. We'll just focus on this. We'll grant you this. He's a wise sage. He's a wonderful teacher, a moral example, political transformer. But what you find in all that sugary compliment is an actual denial of what he said his main mission was. So it's very subtle. And you can be flattered into embracing other views of who Christ is. This is exactly what these people were doing. And Paul is incensed. Because at the heart of his message, you know what he did when he went to Corinth? He said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, When I came among you, I boasted of nothing but Christ and the cross. I held up the cross, the foolishness of the cross. And I did not empty the cross of its power. And look at you, by taking these other Jesuses, you're emptying the power of, its own, of the cross of its own power. So Paul was cross-centered, redemptively centered, when he looked at who Christ is. We must do the same. And we must be aware of Satan's schemes to empty Christ of His real saving power by presenting Him as part of who He is. That's an example of what was going on here in Corinth that had Paul almost in an apoplectic fit. And he says, not only do you receive another Jesus, but you receive a different spirit. Gentlemen, you receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. You received Him. And now you're willing to, to speak of the Spirit as an influence or as a sort of inspiration. You, you speak of Him as it, it, the Spirit. Or maybe you're just willing to take a demonic spirit to carry out the work of God. He said, Do you, have you not been dealing with the real thing? Can you not recognize a counterfeit when you see it? He's saying to them, he's very upset. And he says, not only a different spirit, but a different gospel. You've been told now a different way to be saved, which is basically do these things and you will be saved. And you've been willing to leave, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and now you've gone to do these things and you'll be a good person and you'll be saved because God would never turn down a good person like that. And he said, you're willing to take it. I don't know. You know, we can look at why we do this, but Paul is saying to the Corinthian minority, you folks really need to look at what you've done. You have... You have been allured by Satan to embrace a counterfeit religion. And it so easily happens and we see it every day. Now when you get to verses 5 through 15, he now launches into their misjudging human character. So because they have a different gospel and they're allured by Satan, it throws off even what real human kindness and human righteousness is. So they can no longer judge human character. Your ability to judge human character is coming out of your religious intuitions. When you get to know God, then you get to know what the real image of God is in man. Now you're able to discern human character because you know God. 
When you abandon your knowledge of God or your knowledge of Christ, you abandon your ability to know men and understand them because we're made in His image. So he says, we misjudge human character. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Do you realize how ridiculous that statement is? It's like, what would it be like? It's like Billy Graham coming to town and to have to convince you that he's not inferior to some local heretic here in Memphis. And you say, oh, it's okay, Dr. Graham. Look, I know. No, he says, no, you, you really don't know. Let, let me explain to you that I'm not inferior to the heretic in town. And that's, the Apostle Paul is far greater than Billy Graham, actually. And he is humbling himself to say, can I just make a simple statement? I don't think I'm inferior to these guys who've been le- leading you astray. And he says, uh, in, first of all, in terms of knowledge, he says, you're very impressed with rhetoric and oratory, but you don't seem to be so impressed with knowledge and with truth. I grant that these people are better speakers than I am. I grant they have a larger vocabulary than I do. Paul was a degreed man. He was a well-trained, academically trained man. But he might even have said, I grant that some of these men have more degrees than I do. I grant they have a higher IQ than I do. But what I don't grant is they have more knowledge than I do. I have the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of the gospel. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of all knowledge. Knowledge flows from your fear of the living God, the true, one true and living God. And Paul is saying, I am not inferior to them in knowledge. And certainly, verses 7 through 10, I'm not inferior to them in self-denial. He says, did I really sin against you by not forcing you to pay me for my preaching? Did I sin against you by preaching you the gospel freely, not charging you a thing? These super apostles came in and demanded payment, an honorarium for what they preached. And you thought, well, you know, you get what you pay for. So I suppose if you paid them, then what they had to say was more valuable than what I'm saying. Did I really sin against you because I've refused to take your money? And I took the money for the Macedonians. I'm a missionary. And I came to you as from another culture. And I came paid from another place to give you the gospel freely. I robbed these other churches. I took their money so that I would never take your money. Did I sin against you in that? Was it because I don't love you? No, he says in the next point he's making that they they don't understand human love either. He says, was it because I don't love you? No, just the opposite. You know I love you. And that's exactly the reason I did this. The reason that I treated you as a mission field is because you were dealing with false teachers who were taking your money. And I want to be sure there was no confusion here that I'm not proclaiming the gospel so that I can make a living. I'm proclaiming the gospel so that you can have a life. And I did not want to be confused with these super apostles. I don't want to give them any credibility at all. I don't want you to be confused. And so I'm not going to act like them. I'm going to do it in a very different way. It's going to cost you absolutely nothing so that it's clear in your mind, I am not here for my benefit. I'm here for your benefit. That's what he was trying to say to them. And it's embarrassing to make your apostle have to say this. Good heavens, with all that he did for these people. It's, it's an overwhelmingly sorrowful to me that in my behavior, I would cause someone like that who had been such a valiant leader for Christ 
to have to get down on his knees and beg me to receive him as an honest messenger. It breaks my heart. He says, do you think it's because I don't love you? No. You know, God knows I love you. You should know I love you. So when we take another gospel, we lose the ability even to know what love is. It throws everything off in your character, your ability to discern things, and your ability to promote righteousness in your church and in the community. Leading to the, the, the fourth point here, that they don't understand righteousness. He says, I'm going to continue to do this. You may not understand it, but I'm going to continue to do it because I don't want them to be able to boast that they minister to you in the same way that I do or that they have the same terms that I do with you. I do not want to give them any credibility. I'm going to continue to do this. And by the way that you're acting, I'll be continuing to do this for a very long time. Because until there's a maturity in the church, you can't allow the church to support the minister. Uh, I had a, a young guy who um, had a young family, and he was asking my advice about whether he should go to a very troubled church who had chewed up about two or three pastors ahead of him. And he was a man who was gifted at dealing with troubled churches. And so you can understand why he, he would see himself as potentially gifted to help this church. But the thing is, he has some elementary age children. And when you take elementary age children into an environment like that, you can mess up some elementary age children. You have to be very careful. So my advice to him was, I said, I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, I think this is a wonderful thing for you to look at. I think it's a, it's a big need in our church. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to serve the Lord. I'm concerned about your children. And what I suggest you do, based on what I know about that church and its leadership, which is really troubled and conflicted, I suggest that you get several of us churches to raise your support so that you're paid from the outside. You're not dependent upon that group of leaders to lead that church. And you will not lead them until you have confidence that they understand the gospel and they understand gospel relationships and they understand why they pay their minister to feed them the Word of God until they really understand it and are grateful for the privilege of paying for your salary. You should go as a missionary. Well, he didn't, and three years later, he was chewed up and out. And I think his children suffered for it. And so, when you... And, and I was only giving him advice that, that came to my mind because of Paul. I was just suggesting the Pauline strategy. If you have an immature group of people, you love them. And you're going to have to be strong with them. And you can't also be supported by them. Because then they'll, they'll misunderstand what you're doing. That you're, you're trying to lead them to Christ, and you're reaching in their back pocket and getting their money. Uh, Jim Daldrell's funeral was... On Monday, Jim Daldrell, the, the uh, uh, prior president of Rhodes College, wonderful Christian man. I've never met a man like Jim who could raise money like he did. You saw it in the paper in his obituary. He raised half a billion dollars for Rhodes over 26 years. Rhodes was about ready to close when he got here. Can you believe that? With all of Rhodes' facilities and resources and, and financial strength, in 1973, they were about out. Jim Daldrell comes in. God uses him. They build 11 buildings that cost over a quarter of a billion dollars, and they take their, their endowment from $2 million to $275 million. They're one of the best endowed small colleges around. This guy can raise money. And I said to the group in the funeral, I said, there are some of you here who used to have a whole lot of money until you met Jim Daldrell. <laughs> it's true. And, but Jim raised money from some of you happily 
because you knew he believed in what he was doing, that it was a ministry of the Lord, and you also knew that Jim was giving himself. If you know anything about Jim's lifestyle, you know. He didn't, he didn't hoard money. He raised a ton of it. He kept very little of it. And so men need to know how to use money. They need to know that it's effective in ministry. They need to know how to raise it from one another. They also need to know how not to hang on to it. So when you've got credibility and you're dealing with people who trust your credibility, you can raise money. Paul realized that was not for now. These people are not at that level of maturity. Let's just serve them, lead them to Christ. And he says, you don't know what love is, you don't know what righteousness is. Uh, and furthermore, you don't even know what the outcomes of life are. Look at 15b. Their end will in, it correspond to their deeds. He says, do you realize these super apostles are not just innocent little philosophers who have their own opinions? Do you realize that unless they repent, they're headed for total destruction? That they will face the Lord Almighty and all of His judgment? And they will be stricken and consigned to everlasting punishment because they've rebelled as creatures of God and tried to encourage others to do the same? It's hard to imagine the judgment that they will face. You know, in Psalm 73, you get the psalmist saying, you know, I looked at people out there who were so sleek and so proud and so arrogant, so rich, so healthy and so happy, and my feet almost stumbled. I almost wanted to go the way that they did until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then he said, I discerned their end. And you need to go to church every once in a while just to discern the end of life. And when you think about the end of life and God is judge, you then realize, I need a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot stand on my own record before the living God. I don't have a ghost of a chance before the living God based on my performance, anything that I've done. It's all wicked. Isaiah says, your best deeds are like filthy minstrel rags. That's your best deeds. So what chance is there for you? None. You need a Savior. This is the reason we rejoice to exalt Christ. He is a Savior. And that's His main mission is to save you. To take His righteousness and impute it to you by faith. To take your sin and impute it to Him simply by faith. He takes your sin. You take His righteousness. Now you're ready to meet the Lord in all of His holy judgment. And you have no fear. Because you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul says, please, keep outcomes. Eternal outcomes in your mind. A wise man makes decisions in the short run with a knowledge of long-term outcomes. That's what I'm a wise man does for. That's the reason that if you're 30, you go to a man who's 50. Who can tell you what happens when you treat elementary kids this way. If you neglect them, if you don't love their mother then 20 years later, here's what's going to happen. I can tell you about it because I've lived it out. I'm 50 years old. That's the reason that 45-year-olds go to 65-year-olds and begin to ask them about how to do this, that, and the other. You're looking for someone who's been beyond you. So you make decisions right now in my 30-year stage in view of what it's going to be like at the 50-year stage. And you make decisions at 50 years of age based on what it's going to lead to when you're 70. So who do you talk to? 70-year-olds. That's called wisdom. Being able to give you knowledge for how to manage something here so that it leads to a long-term effect. That's what Paul is saying. Manage life on earth so that you're dealing with life on earth in view of eternal outcomes. Don't be fooled, he says, by these slick teachers who have 
All these innovative ideas that deny the lordship and saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, verses 16 through 22, we're going to race. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Foolish, But even if you do, <laughs> accept me as a fool. <laughs> You've been doing that with everybody else? Do it with me. You gladly bear with fools? Bear with me. And here we go. First of all, we fail to understand true ministry. We do this by empowering manipulative leaders. We empower manipulative leaders. Why do we empower them? Yeah, because they impress us. And let me get to the heart of the matter. We empower them because we want to be like them. We empower uh, preachers who seem to just glide through life who drive really fancy cars, take great vacations, seem not to have a care in the world. It's called the health and wealth gospel. We empower people like that. Why? Because we want to be like that ourselves. We want to be rich and free and leisurely. We want to have a big smile on our face and a perfect hairdo. We want to be just like Him. So that's the reason that we vaunt these people and lift them up. Because we're drawn to the very thing that they're drawn to. That's the reason we do it. So we, and then look, uh, when we empower these leaders, we accept their arrogant abuse. He says, you'd let these people enslave you. You'd let them eat your lunch. You'd let them act arrogantly in front of you. You'd let them slap you right across the face and humiliate you. And you think that's cool. Now, I don't know, you know, if you've been abused as a child, I mean, sometimes... Women who, who were abused in their youth, they end up marrying abusive husbands. We know that pattern. They just get used to being abused. I don't know. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you're used to having your leaders abuse you. Paul says that's not Christianity. Christian leaders do not abuse their followers. They take abuse themselves, but they don't abuse others. He says, you're letting these people do this. I don't, he says, this is a mystery to me. You empower manipulative leaders who, and you accept their arrogant abuse and you fail to recognize humble leadership. He says, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Oh, you say that we're weak. You all are poor. They say, poor Paul, look at him. Can't even walk straight, bow-legged, bald, as tradition tells us, ugly. Can't, he's not very eloquent. He's not, he, he, he's not very forceful in his personality. Oh, I see. So I was too weak to slap you across the face. That was my problem. And Paul says, you, you have no idea why I didn't slap you across the face. It's because Christ didn't slap me across the face. And Christ is gentle and humble and hard, and I found rest for my soul in Christ. And He tells me to be gentle and humble with other people. That's why. Is it because I'm not tempted to slap you across the face? No, it's not because I'm not tempted. But it's because someone has loved me, and I'm trying to imitate Him to you. That's what Paul's saying to them. And secondly, B, verses 22 through the end, we are impressed with the wrong things. We're impressed with these people. We kowtow to phony credentials. These people come to you and they say, hey, we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, we're offspring of Abraham. Paul says, have you forgotten something? So am I. You're really impressed when they tell you they are because you want to be like they are, slick, arrogant, wealthy, big smile on your face, not a care in the world. And so everything they tell you about themselves, you think, oh, he's a Hebrew. He's, he's a child of Abraham. You know, we should listen to him. Paul says, you're so gullible. 
And he says, then we, we actually miss true Christian leaders. Paul says in verse uh, uh, 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says. I'm, ha- I'm, I'm having to be an absolute fool to make my point with you. I'm a better servant. <laughs> well, how is he a better servant? Well, we, we miss Christi- true Christian leaders because they suffer persecution for the gospel. True Christian leaders do. Paul says, these people don't have a care in the world. I've had all kinds of cares. Let me tell you about them. First of all, I've been persecuted for the gospel. And look at this list here. Gentlemen, look at that list. The abuse that the Apostle Paul took is just extraordinary. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, he, he says, don't bother me with your circumcision gospel. I already bear in my body. Of course, Paul was circumcised, but he said, I bear in my body already the marks of Jesus. And what were those marks of Jesus? They were marks all over his body. He was saying that my marks of persecution, the evil and the afflictions and the persecutions that I've borne, they are my brand. What about you? Would you say, you know, what I've suffered for the gospel, that is what marks me out. That's the reason Jesus said to his disciples, when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice and be glad for the prophets were persecuted before you. That's your insignia. Not your slick, happy life. Look how God has blessed me. And that means that if you are blessed, you are always happy and healthy and wealthy. Paul's saying, not at all. When you're blessed, you get to take the role of a prophet. And they all ended up persecuted and dead, actually. B, he says, these real Christian leaders endure hardship for the gospel. Look at this list. He says here, I was shipwrecked three times. This is before the famous shipwreck in Acts 27. So he was shipwrecked at least four times. Shipwrecked. It's like, <laughs> like you say, you know, I've been in an airplane, I've been in an airplane accident. You say, really? Yeah, I said, well, actually, I've been in two. Really? Yeah, I've been in three. Really? You've been in four airplane accidents. Have you ever considered not flying anymore? You know, four shipwrecks and hanging on to, to flotsam overnight on one occasion, all night long, not knowing if he was going to be rescued. That's, he's got a lot of frequent flyer miles here and lots of problems. And he had danger everywhere that he went from both his own people, the Jews and the Gentiles, from false brothers who were faking to be Christians and then who tried to do him in later. He was up all night many times. He often didn't have anything to eat or to drink, and he was often cold and exposed without proper clothing to keep his body warm. And Paul says real ministers of the gospel bear the burdens for the gospel. He says apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why would he be anxious? Why would he be anxious? Yeah, look at the Corinthian church. Why would he be anxious? Here's why he's anxious. He loves them. Just like you sometimes find yourself anxious about your children. You love them. You want them to make good decisions. You want them to, you want them to, to live a life that's meaningful. You want them to be healthy. You want them to rear their children in the right way. And you find yourself tempted to be anxious. Paul loved us. And he was anxious for our welfare all the time. And if you're in ministry, you are. You carry these people on your heart. And then lastly, he says, you miss true Christian leaders because you've missed the fact that they actually show weakness for the gospel. It's just the opposite of what you're saying. You say a Christian leader should be strong. I'm saying to you, a Christian leader should be weak. And he should show his weakness because when he knows his own weakness and he's willing to share that weakness with others, 
then what you end up with is the strength of God. And Paul here shows an example where he, he says, let me tell you about my weakness. You know how I got out of Damascus? Lifted over the wall in a basket. No parades for me. No honor guard. I had to sneak out in a basket. Totally humiliated. There's your apostle in a basket being left o- let out over the wall. Well, let me close with reading to you a tribute that I wrote to the, about the Apostle Paul uh, two or three years ago after just taking a trip to walk in his footsteps and especially being moved by my trip to Corinth. I said, the person we consider here is one of the most remarkable figures in world history, certainly the most influential Christian who ever lived. He not only wrote 13 books of the New Testament, but he was a champion of the gospel, declaring clearly and defending boldly every cardinal issue of our salvation. He did this at the continual risk of his comfort, his convenience, and his life. He was not only a scholar of the Old Testament, but a brilliant apologist. He systematically explained to his Christian brethren how Jesus fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament and how he unquestionably fulfilled the messianic hopes of God's people. At the same time, he boldly demonstrated how the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus fulfilled the deepest longings of the pagan people. By the power of the Spirit and by the message of the gospel, he destroyed the wisdom of the wise and the power of the mighty. Peter also proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles, but no one ever in 1900 years accomplished what the Apostle Paul did. He not only studied and taught the message of the gospel with scholarly precision, but he planned and executed the mission of the gospel in a way no one had ever seen nor ever has seen since. He traveled from one hostile site to another for 25 years, passionately evangelizing rich and poor, male and female, educated and unlearned. He never bore arms and never threatened violence. But by simple determination and faithfulness to the Jesus he believed in, he stood down kings and governors, proconsuls and chieftains, scholars and priests. The mission of the gospel came at great cost to himself. Shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, whippings, and imprisonments were his common experience. He grieved, he suffered, he agonized. He felt the bitter pain of his beatings and the biting cold of his prisons and the intense loneliness of his leadership. But for Paul, every trial became an opportunity to believe the gospel more deeply. Every affliction became the occasion to know, love, and praise Jesus Christ more enthusiastically. And every painful discouragement became a platform from which he lectured his students about the all-sufficiency of God's love for them in every circumstance. When Paul began his ministry, very few people believed in the legitimacy of his mission to the Gentiles. There were virtually no churches in Asia or Europe. There were many who mightily opposed him. He nonetheless boldly and lovingly confronted the religious traditions of people all over the Mediterranean who proudly resisted new ideas, especially religious ones. And when he died, he left behind a changed world, a local church in every major city in Asia Minor and much of southern Europe, so that the world would hear the gospel for the next 2,000 years. Today we see a world that consists of 33% professing Christians, half of whom may be genuinely converted. The church is on every continent and in almost every country. Paul faced the end of his life in Rome, not with stoic resignation, but with joyful, triumphant, and eager anticipation. He was not a hypocrite. He believed what he preached. One cannot object that we mustn't elevate a mere man to be our life example, for Paul made it clear that if we imitate him, we will also be imitating Jesus Christ. 
We don't know of a more fiercely loyal disciple Jesus ever had. Paul loved Christ and pled with us to love Him too. Paul said of himself simply, I am what I am by the grace of God. We should therefore be most amazed at the grace of God who converted a Christian killer to be His apostle to the world. I owe my life and you do too and our salvation to the God who raised up a man from Tarsus, a former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, a man who diligently studied, preached, taught, developed disciples and gave his life that we might have the good news of Jesus. I can't wait to see him, to express my gratitude, to ask my questions and to enjoy the warmth and radiance of his friendship for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the Apostle Paul who preached the most important gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer of your people. Enable us to be faithful, to withstand the wiles of the evil one and the allurements of our own flesh, that we may stand for the gospel and for Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.